Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Zephaniah chapter 2, and uh, I just want to tell you, you know, there's three chapters in the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 1, which we covered last week, it starts out with God's judgment of all flesh. It's kind of a, kind of a blanket, you know, Zephaniah's got the gift, the bottom line, and that's how he starts out, just, you know, God's going to judge the earth, all the world, all flesh. And then he goes from there and he starts speaking about God's judgment of Judah and Jerusalem. And, you know, as the Jews are probably hearing God's, you know, the, the, the reading the words of Zephaniah and reading about this judgment of all flesh, you know, it's, when, it, when it's, it's in the distance and it involves everybody, it, you know, it's kind of like, okay, yeah, I, I know that. But then Zephaniah zeroes in on the individuals and he starts speaking about the sin of the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And now it's, you know, it's going to hit closer to home because it's going gonna, it's gonna to speak about what those people are doing. And so he judges idolatry astrology, superstitions, having a divided heart. We talked about that last week. Apostasy, a falling away, uh, covetousness, complacency, all those things that plague people to this day. Uh, Even in our day and age, we struggle with those same sins. And so Zephaniah was speaking God's judgment against the people of Judah for those sins. And uh, in light of God's judgment regarding these sins, they were guilty. Uh, they were guilty, and in light of that, they were going to be uh, punished in the form of going into Babylonian exile. And so that was chapter one. So now, when we pick up chapter two this morning, chapter two starts with God pleading with His people to repent of their sins. So we'll pick it up here in, in Zephaniah chapter two, verse one. It reads, gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation, before the decree is issued, or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Gather or assemble yourselves together, he says, O undesirable nation. That word can also be translated shameless. It's a nation that's so set on its rebellion and sin that it is no longer ashamed of itself. And so he says, gather yourselves together before the decree of judgment, before the judgment is issued, or the day, he says, passes like chaff. For Jerusalem, exile would be about 50 years from the point of Zephaniah's prophecy. So for 50 years, the Lord's reminding them, repent of your sins. There's still time to turn your course. And of course, we know the history that they didn't. You know, one of Satan's strategies in our lives is delay. That's one of his best forms of weapon is, you know, you've got time. You don't have to deal with that right now. You can just put it off for tomorrow. I don't know about you. There's times when I get so ambitious. I've got this plan for the day. You know, I'm going to do this and this and this. And, uh, and then as the day progresses pretty soon, the, you know, the time is gone. And you look back and you go, wow, what happened to the day? I mean, it just passed like chaff. You know, we probably don't call it chaff. But, you know, it's like, wow, what happened to the day? It felt like nothing got accomplished. Well, that is what this refers to, the day passing like chaff. And so the Lord's pleading with his people to not let their lives pass like chaff. Because not only is that a day, but people's lives can be like that. You know, one of these days, 
I'll start serving the Lord. One of these days, you know, I'm going to get really committed and just following the Lord. And the thing is, that's one of Satan's strategies, not tragedies. He tells you, you've got time. Well, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews talks about time. (coughs) Excuse me. He says in Hebrews 3.13, for each of us to exhort one another daily while it is still called today, lest any of us be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. See, we can get deceived. We can think, wow, I've got all kinds of time. And the, and the reality is, no, you don't. Satan is right when he whispers in your ear, you've got time. But what he means is, you've got tomorrow. Of course, the Holy Spirit, meanwhile, whispers in your heart telling you, yeah, you've got time right now, but it's right now. Your time is right now. Deal with it now. Because none of us have tomorrow guaranteed. And so what are these people get to gather together to do? Look at verse 3. Seek the Lord. All you meek of the earth who have upheld his justice, seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. To be meek, it means to be humble, to be lowly, to be poor in need and weak. All you who are meek, he says, seek the Lord. All you who uphold his justice. What does that mean? Well, not only do you agree with God's laws, mentally but you practice them. He says, those of you that are practicing, man, seek the Lord. Seek righteousness. I mean, seek a right standing with the Lord. Seek humility. Why does he tell us to seek humility? Because that's the opposite of our human nature, right? Pride is our human nature. And so we're to seek humility. And he says, it may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Proverbs 18.10 tells us the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. For the New Testament saint, for you and I, Paul writes this in Colossians 3 verse 2. He says, set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Then Christ, who is your, our life, appears. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is literally going to be fulfilled for Israel during the Great Tribulation. At that time, Israel is going to be meek. Why is it going to be meek? It's going to be meek because every nation on earth is going to turn its back on Israel. They are going to be alone in the world globally. No one is going to be looking, uh, she has no one to look to for strength. And during that time, the Antichrist is going to unleash his wrath on Israel. But God is going to provide a hiding place for the nation in the rock city of Petra. And so they're going to be hidden. This is, this is, I think, what this is speaking about as well. During the Great Tribulation, the church is going to be hidden away with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Regarding the tribulation, Jesus said this in Matthew, or excuse me, Luke twenty-one thirty-six. He says, "Watch therefore and pray also always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man." So, the Lord saying, "Man, seek the Lord. It may be that you'll be hidden away when judgment comes." Next, Zephaniah proclaims God's judgment against the nations surrounding Judah. See, God is pronouncing a judgment on Judah, the Babylonians, 
they're going to go into exile. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And although God is sending Babylon to chasten his people, the surrounding nations, they're not going to escape the Babylonians either. They're going to be destroyed also. Look at verse 4. For Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon desolate. They shall drive out Ashdod at noonday, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you, so there shall be no inhabitant. The seacoast shall be pastures with shelters for shepherds and folds for flocks. The coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed their flocks there in the houses of Ashkelon. They shall lie down at evening. Uh, for, that, for the Lord their God will intervene for them and return their captives. You know, it's interesting. God does discriminate when he judges nations. What do I mean by that? I don't know if you listened when we were, I was reading that, or maybe you're reading along. Look at the severity of God's judgment against the four chief cities of Philistia. But not only that, the severity, the finality of it. Listen, Gaza is going to be forsaken. Ashkelon is going to be desolate. Ashdod, it'll be driven out. Ekron will be uprooted. See, the nation of Philistia would be overrun uh, along with Judah by Nebuchadnezzar. The inhabitants of those four chief cities, they would be carried into exile. Now, we know from history, however, that they remained viable cities after the exile. They weren't completely wiped out at that point. But then a later empire, the Greece Empire, Greek, the, uh, Greece actually overthrown, overthrew those cities. And eventually, those cities and the Philistines themselves were wiped out from history. You might say, well, wait a minute. We read about Gaza all the time in the news. Well, the modern city of Gaza is in a different location than the original city. All those cities, just as God said, they are ruins at this point now. And although Palestine is a name that was derived from the Philistines, that's, you know, that, that was the name that was derived from, the Palestinians are not descendants of the Philistines. Why? Because the Philistines no longer exist. They were totally wiped out. So the nation of the Philistines would eventually be wiped out just as Zephaniah prophesied. Their land would be places where the remnant of the returning Hebrew captives would pasture their flocks and live in houses. And so verse 8 now, he says, I have heard the reproach of Moab and the insults of the people of Ammon with which they have reproached my people and made arrogant threats against their borders. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be like Sodom and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah, overrun with weeds and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall plunder them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. This they shall have for their pride, because they have reproached and made arrogant threats against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Moab, the Moabites, and the Ammonites, they were descended from Moab and Ben-Ami. Those were the two sons of Lot's daughters, and that whole incestuous relationship that happened after the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. Their descendants grew to hate the children of Israel. And so they made threats against them, and they, were, they hated Israel, the children of Israel. And God is going to judge the Moabites and the Ammonites because of their insults and their threats directed at his people, Israel. 
You know, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36 and 37, he said, but I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You know, I think about the nations today. How many nations today are insulting and threatening Israel? The United Nations, you know, they gather together and they say, Israel is the worst violator of human rights. It's like, huh? Have you looked at some of the nations that are on that, on that council that are saying these decrees? It's incredible. Well, God's going to judge those nations as well as their actions. Why? Because he told Abraham, I will bless those that bless you and I will curse him that curses you. And it was true in the case of Moab and Ammon. God cursed them because they cursed his people Israel. And it will be true in the case of the United Nations or any other nation that curses Israel. I get so concerned when I see the direction our country is going with regards to Israel. God's not going to bless us if we turn our backs on the nation of Israel. And so Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the land of Moab and Ammon also. And most of that area is desolated to this very day. Verse 11 The Lord will be awesome to them, for he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. People shall worship him, each from his place. Indeed, all the shores of the nations, you Ethiopians also, you shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, and make Nineveh a desolation, as dry as the wilderness. The herd shall lie down in her midst. Every beast of the nation, both the pelican and the bittern, shall lodge on the capitals of her pillars." Their voice shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be at the threshold, for he will lay bare the cedar work. This is the rejoicing city. Speaking of Nineveh, this is the rejoicing city that dwelt securely, that said in her heart, I am it, and there is none besides me. How she has become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down. Everyone who passes by her shall shall hiss and shake his fist. So not only these other nations, but the nations of Ethiopia and Assyria are not going to escape God's judgment either. Nebuchadnezzar is going to overthrow them as well. The Assyrian capital, which was the city Nineveh, it was one of the greatest cities of that time. It's going to be destroyed, Zephaniah writes. Now, at the time that Zephaniah is writing this, Nineveh was still in existence. It was a, it was a, mighty, a very mighty great city. But it was eventually destroyed. The Babylonians and the Medes, they kind of ganged up together and they surrounded Nineveh. And Nineveh was such a strong city that it withstood the siege for two years. They had so much, they had fresh water in there, they had so much in abundance, they were able to outlast being surrounded and cut off for two whole years. And it seemed like they would be able to outlast the siege indefinitely. But then something happened. It started raining. And a rainstorm became a storm, and pretty soon water was flooding everywhere, and it caused a river along uh, Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, to swell its banks. And the flooding water literally dissolved the walls, uh, the foundation of the wall of Nineveh, in a certain point, port, place where the, the armies of Nebuchadnezzar and the Medes, they were able to re- enter right into this great mighty city, and overtake it, again, just exactly as God spoke about it. The book of Nahum, that's, that's all that, what that's about. It was so utterly destroyed that for thousands of years, no one knew where the ruins were. It wasn't 
until, in fact, the great city of Nineveh, as the word says here, they literally became a place for the birds. That's what the birds just hung out. The wild animals, that was their dwelling place, this great mighty city. And it wasn't until about the mid-1800s when the ruins of Nineveh was actually discovered. That is how utterly desolated and wiped out it was. And so Zephaniah, he's speaking about all these nations around Judah, and now, again, like he did in chapter 1, now he's going to speak uh, once more against Jerusalem in chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted to the oppressing city. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave not a bone until morning. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. Now, if you were just reading this up to this point, you would have thought that this judgment was against the wicked and heathen city of Nineveh. But when you look at it, this is a city that has princes, judges, and prophets, and priests of the Lord. Listen to the, how the Lord describes Jerusalem in the Bible. In 1 Kings eleven thirty six, he says this, speaking of Jerusalem, he says, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. Their reputation, man, this is, this is the Lord's city. His name is there. Isaiah 2, 3, For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That, that, that would be the center. Lamentations 2, 15. Is this the city that is called per, the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? Man, this is God's people, God's city. And yet, the people were polluted because of their rebellion. How do they pollute themselves? Well, I can tell you, it wasn't from external. It wasn't from without. It was internal. Their hearts became polluted. When? When they didn't obey God's voice. They just stopped listening to the Lord and not obeying Him. They didn't receive the Lord's correction. They didn't trust in the Lord, and they didn't draw near to Him. Verse 5, The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails, but the unjust knows no shame. Despite their pollution, despite the fact that they are turning their back on the Lord, the righteous Lord was still in her midst. You know, it reminds me of Hosea. Hosea, if you, if you recall the prophet, he was told to marry Gomer, a prostitute. And she was unfaithful to him. She was unfaithful in his household, and yet God commanded Hosea to remain married to her and to love a faithless and adulterous wife. And, of course, that's a picture of God's love for an adulterous people. Even though they had turned their back on the Lord their God was still in their midst. Second Timothy 2.13, Paul writes this, If we're faithless, he remains faithful. He can't deny himself. Even when you and I are faithless, God is still faithful. He says the Lord will do no unrighteousness. You know, sometimes I don't understand why God is doing something in my life. Do you feel that way too? Sometimes like, man, I don't, I don't get it. I don't know why you're doing this, Lord. Sometimes I have a hard time with, God, with what God's doing in my life. It's like, Lord, why are you doing it? Lord, this is so difficult. 
But it's during those difficult times, it's during the times that I don't understand, that's when I need to fall back and realize, man, God's not going to do anything unrighteous. God's a good God and a loving God. He, every morning, he brings his justice to light. In Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah is re- using a picture of, a, of an owner of a vineyard and how he, how he built the vineyard. And of course, the vineyard, it's, a, it's Jerusalem, his people, what he's talking about. And, it, and, it, and he talks about how he just poured himself into this, into this vineyard, removed the stones and cultivated the land, built a wall, protected it, watered it. He did all these things to it, and it produced wild grapes, grapes that weren't good for anything. It says there in Isaiah 5, verse 3 says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? See, every morning, the Lord was revealing himself, revealing justice to the people. He's bringing it to light. He was sending prophet after prophet after prophet to his people. And yet, they failed. And you know, people fail. I don't know if you put your trust in people, but people will let you down. But God never fails. He says, but the unjust knows no shame. Just thinking about that. You know, in past generations, I mean, sin's been around ever since the Garden of Eden, right? I mean, sin's been around. People sin. That's, sin happens. Um, but interesting, I, at least from my experience, it seems like the people that committed sin in the past, there was still a sh- a, an amount of shame. You know, they kind of kept it under wraps. It was hidden, kind of. But today, in our generation, it's completely flaunted. It's like, you got to accept me. I don't care. You, you know, and it's just, it's just flaunted out there. Everything is out in the open and celebrated. There's no shame anymore. Verse 6, I have cut off nations. Their fortresses are devastated. I have made their streets desolate with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitant. And listen to this. The Lord says, I said, Surely you will fear me, you will receive instruction, so that her dwelling would not be cut off, despite everything for which I punished her. But they arose early and corrupted all their deeds. I mean, God's just like, it's like he doesn't understand. Because, man, I've, I've poured myself into these people. I've, I've sent prophet after prophet. I've destroyed all these nations around Judah. You, you would think that they would go, wow, man, if God's going to do that, we better get our act together. We better start following the Lord. We better repent of our sin. He says, surely they would have done that, but they haven't. They're still pursuing sin. In fact, they're rising up early to do their sin. They made an effort to sin. The nation of Judah is guiltier than sin. They have so turned their back on the Lord. They've not feared their own judgment when they learned of God's judgment on the surrounding nations. And so at this point in this chapter... You would think the next phrase would be from the Lord. Therefore, man, you guys are experiencing my wrath. (laughs) You've earned it. You deserve it. But that's not what it says. Look at verse 8. The God of infinite mercy and loving kindness tells his people there in verse 8, Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. All of the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. In spite of their sin, God has not forsaken his people Israel. 
Paul deals with that extensively in Romans 11. He says, has God cast away his people? I mean, after all, we read about the Assyrians. They were completely cast away. There's not an Assyrian on the planet today. The Philistines were cast away. So many nations that now no longer exist. And so you would think, well, it's natural. The, the, The Jewish people have turned their backs on the Lord. Has God cast them away, Paul says. And he answers, he says, man, certainly not. Let me read this, Romans 11, verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? The Gentiles, and most of us, I know not all of us, but most of us here are Gentiles. And becoming Heirs of salvation is God's plan to provoke Israel to jealousy. Because Israel rejected her Messiah, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And I don't know about you, but I am thankful that salvation came to the Gentiles because I wouldn't be saved today if it wasn't that case. I'm not Jewish. I mean, it's riches for you and I that Paul at one point says, okay, I'm preaching to the, to the Jews or to the Gentiles now that the gospel went to the Gentiles. It's riches for us. And Paul writes, man, if their rejection of the Messiah turned out to be riches for you and I, how much more is their salvation going to be riches for us when they finally turn back to the Lord? And so now in the rest of the book of Zephaniah, Zephaniah is looking beyond the age of the Gentiles, which is the age that you and I live in right now, the church age, to the tribulation and beyond into the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, which we know as the millennium, it's called. The tribulation, it's a seven-year period where God is going to be pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, but it's also a time when he's going to be drawing Israel back to himself. Verse 9, For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language, that they may all call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. I want to read this to you. It's out of Chuck Missler's book, Cosmic Codes. It says, It's interesting that the prophet prophet Zephaniah predicted that when the nation of Israel would, would be resurrected, that they would return to pure Hebrew as a language. The adoption of the Hebrew of Hebrew by the modern state of Israel is the first time in history that a dead language has been revived. It's an amazing thing. But not only is this, I think, what Chuck Missler is referring to, but think about this. In the beginning of the book, the book of Genesis, the beginning of the story, God dispersed the nations at Babel, remember? He confused their language. He just scattered them. That was the beginning of the book. But here Zephaniah is speaking about the end of the book, the end of the story. God's going to bring together peoples with a pure language that they may all call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. So this is kind of inferring that it's quite possible during the 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth that the world will have one common language. And my guess is it's going to be Hebrew. So if you want to start learning Hebrew, it might be a good time. You can be more fluent than others. You know, speaking about pure language, remember when Isaiah, in his vision, he, he sees the Lord Jesus in the temple, and it's just he's just blown away. And he says to the Lord, man, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. You remember what happened? The angel took a coal from the fire before the altar with tongs, and he, and he touched um, Isaiah's lips, 
and purified his lips, cleansed his lips. The only way you and I can have a pure language is when our hearts are made pure. Matthew twelve thirty five. Jesus says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. I don't know about you, but my prayer is, Lord, cleanse my heart so I'll have pure lips before you. Well, that's going to happen in the millennium. Zephaniah 3.10, it says, From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. It's amazing. You know, we've seen a partial fulfillment even in our lifetime with the return of Jews worldwide to Israel. Jews from just about every nation. They don't look alike. They, they don't speak the same language, and yet they come to Jerusalem. All these different cultures and everything. We're seeing a picture of that, but it's going to be ultimately fulfilled during the millennium when all peoples, Jews from all nations will come. Verse 11, In that day you shall not be ashamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. I don't know about you, but I loved it when we did our study through Ezekiel. I loved the book of Ezekiel. And as we learned in Ezekiel, the Lord is going to reign on the earth from a millennial temple that sits on the highest mountain on the earth at that time. It's not Mount Everest. It's Mount Zion. The world's going to look a little different there when the millennium, uh, at the end of the tribulation, the start of the millennium. Israel is going to be the only world superpower during the millennium. But unlike superpowers today, the nation's not going to be proud and haughty. Instead, they're going to be meek and humble. And that verse that we've read, we maybe you've learned it as you were a little kid, the meek shall inherit the earth. That's literally going to be fulfilled in the millennium. The meek nation of Israel is going to inherit the earth. The remnant of Israel during the millennium is going to put their trust in Jesus Christ. And they will be a purified people that will do no unrighteousness, that will not speak lies nor deceive, and they will have true peace and security. Every president, every administration in the United States is trying to bring peace to the Middle East, and it's never going to happen until the Prince of Peace reigns on the throne there in Jerusalem. And so at this point, there's rejoicing. Look at verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. I don't know if you kind of caught the, you know, we were in the gloom and doom last week of, of judgment. And not at the joy here. The millennium is going to be a time of great joy for the remnant of Israel. Why? Because the Lord has taken away their judgments, because their enemy has been cast out. But the greatest reason for great joy, the king of Israel, the Lord, will be in their midst. I don't know about you. Man, I can't wait until the time when I see my Lord and Savior face to face. Why? You know, faith will no longer, we won't need faith anymore. Faith will be sight. When you see your Savior, Jesus will be in their midst. There's no longer going to be a need for prophecy or tongues. Why? Because Jesus 
will be there in their midst. There will be no more enemy to harass and threaten them. Why? Because Jesus will be in their midst. Man, that that's, that's gives us cause for great joy. Verse 16, it, In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. I don't know if you're catching a theme there. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I don't know about you. This verse is an amazing thing. You know, in Luke 15, verse 7, Jesus said that there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons, just persons who don't need any repentance. When you came to faith in Christ Jesus, do you know that there was a worship choir going off in heaven, praising the Lord and just, hallelujah, finally, Teresa got saved. Thought it would never happen. Well, according to Zephaniah here, there's going to be something extra special when Israel turns to the Lord. The Lord himself is going to break into song. Have you ever heard that phrase, man, I hear people singing, it just sounds like angels. Well, can you imagine when Jesus sings, how beautiful that's going to be? And that's going to happen. Verse 18, I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you, to whom its its reproach is a burden. I don't, um, one of the things that just jumped out at me when when I read that verse is Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. You know, his ministry, you know, I've been blessed. I've seen lives changed here. I've been able to baptize quite a few people here. I've seen people accept Christ. You know, I've seen lives. I've seen fruit in the lives of people. It's very rewarding to do ministry and see people respond. It's very rewarding. Jeremiah ministered his entire lifetime and never saw a convert. He never saw a life changed. That was his ministry. Can you imagine how disheartening, how hard that would have been? Well, I think this verse is for him and others like him. Jeremiah the weeping prophet and others like him, those who grieved over the sin of Judah. The Lord's going to gather them together. Those who were forsaken like Hosea and prophets like them. You know, Hosea, he sacrificed his own comforts. You read about what he had to do for the Lord as a sign to the children of Israel. That was difficult what he had to do. God would use his life as a sign to the sinful nation of Judah. And yet, the Lord is going to gather them to him. Yesterday when we were ministering there at uh, the flood run, you know, uh, it took a lot of effort to get everything together. You know, it was a lot of planning, a lot of logistics, and then, you know, the work of setting up and stuff. And it was tough. And sometimes, you know, when you, when you pour yourself into things and then you don't see the results that you kind of hope is going to happen, it can get discouraging. Well, I want you to remember this. Listen to Hebrews 6.10. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God's not going to forget the labor that you pour out for him. And so Jeremiah, Hosea, people like that, I think this verse is for them. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly, who are among you, to whom its reproach is a burden. Verse 19, Behold, at that time I will deal with all who afflict you, 
I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. At that time I will bring you back, even at the time I will I gather you. For I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. See, the enemies of the Lord and of his people, they're going to be dealt with. They're going to be forsaken. They're going to be made desolate. They're going to be driven out. They're going to be uprooted. But he himself will gather his people to him. There's a love of a Savior for each one of us. Jesus, when he was riding in on a donkey from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, in chapter 23 of Matthew, verse 37, he says, he started weeping. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Do you see the difference? He's going to utterly wipe out these, these enemies of the Lord. But man, he wants, just like a, like a mother hen wants to gather her children, he's going to gather his people to him. You know, this whole prophecy in Zephaniah, it's announcing judgment to Judah. And it's almost like he jumps over the, the physical, the actual judgment and stuff, and he goes to the end of the story. But, but there's hope, there's rejoicing, there's rejoicing. Why? Because he sees the end result of his judgment on them. The purpose for his judgment is not to wipe out his people. The purpose for his judgment is to purify a people for him. That's That's the whole plan for him. His purifying fire is meant to save the lame, to gather the outcasts, to replace... Uh, shame with praise and fame and to release those in bondage when the lord chastens you and i because he does that when he the bible says he chastens us because he loves us he doesn't chasten us to wipe us out to destroy us he's working in your and my life to refine us to purify people so that so that we have a pure language we can worship him in in truth and honesty in our hearts the whole purpose is to bring us to a place where he can gather him. You know, for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ this morning, I can't wait to the time when I will see Jesus face to face, but the Bible says when we, when we accept Jesus Christ in our heart, when we repent of our sins, man, he comes and dwells in us. He's in our midst. He's here this morning among us here. What a joy and a pleasure and a, and a, and a sense, a, a cause for rejoicing. And so as we finish the book of Zephaniah, you know, it started really bleak. Judgment, you know, I mean, it's, it's pretty much, it's gloom and doom. That last chapter was like, wow, this is a heavy chapter. Chapter one, when we doubt that, did that. But see, the Lord sees the end result. And, you know, you and I, whatever the Lord's doing in your life this morning, sometimes it's hard to see, it's hard to understand why things are the way they are. Well, I want to just encourage you this morning God has a plan and a purpose. He did it for Israel. He did it for Judah. And he does it for you and I as well. He's got a plan and a purpose. And that is to purify you and I as well. So why don't you stand up. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning, Lord, I just thank you for your great love for your people, Lord. And I thank you that you have loved us Gentiles as well. Lord, that Lord, that we were included in your covenant with Israel, your people. 
Father, I thank you for that. Lord, I thank you for your great love and that, Lord, you pursued us. Lord, that when we were your enemies, Lord, you still died on the cross for our sins. I thank you for that, Lord God. Lord, this morning as we looked at this passage of Scripture, and Lord, starting out with judgment, but Lord, you're looking at the end result, the results of judgment. The results is to have a pure people. And Father, I pray that each one of us this morning, Lord, that we would trust you, Lord, that we would draw near to you, Lord, because that's what you desire. You desire us to draw near to you. You desire us to trust you. Lord, you desire us to receive your correction. Lord, you want us to obey your word. This morning, Father, I pray that you would enable us to do that. Lord, we we desire to do that this morning. Lord, our spirit is willing, and yet our flesh is weak. So, Lord, I pray that you might fill each one of us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we might do those things, Lord, uh, that you command. And so I just thank you for that reminder this morning. Lord, I pray your blessing upon your people this day, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.